All of you on the gutter. One, and lift your Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 810 for the week of Monday, 1010. That's October 10th, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight for the show that'll sure to be a 10 out of 10, we'll start with Gene McCulka, who is joining us live from Wallops Island, Virginia, ahead of the upcoming Antares launch. Welcome, Gene. Hey, sir. Thanks a lot. Sorry for the sounds here. We've got a bunch of fish tanks going on in the lobby, so they're kind of chiming in and going to enjoy the show tonight. But looking forward to representing the uh, program over here at Wallops Island for the upcoming Antares launch. This is uh, going to be Antares return to flight, and I'm really, really excited to be a small part of it. Excited to have you be a part of it, and we'll be touching a little bit more on that tonight. And of course, a full recap of that coming up on the next episode. But before we get to that, we got to get to this episode, which includes the rest of our team. That includes Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Welcome, Cassie. Hey, it's great to be here, and uh, it's great to have gone to IAC for this show. Um, I can't wait to talk about that tonight and next week, because that's how packed it was. Ooh, already getting excited. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Also really excited to be here and back to feeling better, because... I had a great time at IAC, but I also spent a lot of time at IAC feeling a little under the weather. So very happy to be feeling back 100% and on the show to share everything with you. As long as you didn't drink the water in Mexico. <laughs> hey, actually, I did drink the water in Mexico using my Oco NASA spinoff filter, and I did not get sick. Awesome. <laughs> that we covered right on this show. <laughs> there you go. And welcome to Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. All right, so we've had quite the busy space week going on, so we're going to touch on a few of the major stories. And first and foremost is uh, one of my all-time favorite missions, the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission, which came to a very fitting end on Thursday, September 29th, 2016, into Friday, September 30th, 2016. The Rosetta spacecraft, which is probably most famous for launching the Philae lander after getting to orbit around Comet 67P back in 2014 when that landed, uh, has gone for its own hashtag Comet landing, sort of a crash landing we'll say, onto the surface on the way taking back some of the closest pictures of a comet that we've ever gotten that weren't taken directly from the surface. Gene, you were watching that early morning landing, right? Yeah, Sawyer, the, uh, land, well, the quote landing, close quote, actually occurred at, uh, I believe it was uh, 7.19 a.m., I think it was, Eastern Daylight Time. We, we got some very, very good close-ups, Sawyer, that you mentioned, of uh, Comet 67P as Rosetta came in. A lot of people kind of were, it, it was a melancholy time. I mean, th this probe gave us a very good image of 
67P. It was actually some, some very, very dramatic images over the past couple of years from its lifetime. It literally rewrote the book on comets. So hats off to ESA for a wonderful mission, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh, the Chaparelli landing in the not-too-distant future. I believe that's all keyed up and ready to go. Chaparelli is a uh, pathfinder for the uh, ExoMars flight. Uh, ExoMars is going to be uh, also coming in in, in the not-too-distant future into Martian orbit, so we'll be looking forward to that. But uh, that's next on the uh, on the list for uh, for the European Space Agency, and it's something we're going to be watching, and uh, we'll be back here telling you all about that, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was such a great mission after all those years, again, with the Philae lander, and then finding Philae within a month before it was scheduled to have that quote-unquote landing and if anybody's been following the mission they posted comics every now and then about the mission and the last one you know after mission success with Philae chilling in the background it was a bit sad but a bit uh humorous way to go from a serious standpoint if anybody has has not seen this go out on uh, on youtube and look this one up or you know we'll try to see if we can get this into the show notes there was a short film called ambition that was attached to Rosetta. If you haven't seen it, guys, take a look at it, because I thought it was very, very inspiring. It really talked about the core precepts of the flight, why we were doing this, and we're, we're just following the water, trying to find out where possibly the water that comprises this planet came from. And it's quite possible that uh, cometary impacts may have had a good input onto where the water came from here on Earth. So that's a theory, too, that uh, Rosetta will be trying to prove. We'll be uh, coming back to that. The, the Rosetta mission, the operations end of it, may be over. However, the science part of this will be going on for, for some time. So there, there's still reams of data that we haven't really looked at. And the folks back at ESA will be very, very busy. I'm sure uh, Mr. Taylor over there will be extraordinarily busy as well going through all of the data that his beloved spacecraft has sent back and getting that information out. But Rosetta will definitely rewrite the books on what we know about comets, and that's something that we're all kind of looking forward to. Absolutely, and a huge shout-out to everybody there as part of the Rosetta team, and a congratulations to everyone there at the European Space Agency on a mission well done. I would actually like to add, because you mentioned congratulations to everyone at the European Space Agency, I, I got to be in the room with a bunch of people who work there moments after Rosetta touched down and just before the first images came in. And I loved how it's such an agency-wide mission. People who have nothing to do with it have this pride of ownership in it. It was kind of extraordinary. to I've never seen the end of a mission like that, where I guess really an uncrewed mission, a pure science mission. And the energy in the room, thousands of miles away from the actual control room, was just as exciting as if each person there had had a hand in it. And so huge congratulations to everybody over at ESA. That is so cool to hear. It's it's great seeing the passion that these people have for their missions, you know, and the missions of their space agency in general, even if it's not their mission. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it was extraordinary. I was mostly hanging out with people from Aztec, and they're working on entirely different things. Not that they're not don't have hands in everything at ESA, it seems like, but... <laughs> But yeah, it, uh, just amazing, especially also seeing like student interns and stuff who have just been tangentially 
connected to Rosetta. They were so excited and you could just see that it was going to inspire them to do more things in the future as they get better jobs and move on from their internships and degrees. You know, it's, it was amazing. It's very cool that Issa set that up. I think, especially for the young people who got to be there. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Now that, that sounds awesome. I wish I could have been there for that, but it was still great to watch it and a great end to a, well, great mission. Speaking of missions, we do have another mission coming up, as we briefly mentioned during the intro. The Antares Return to Flight, the rocket designed by Orbital ATK, is scheduled to lift off from Wallops Island, Virginia, where Arjun McCulloch is right now. It was originally supposed to be on Thursday, however, it has now been pushed until Friday at 8.51pm Eastern Time, hopefully the day that this comes out. The reason for the delay was due to, and I will quote directly from the email from Orbital ATK, quote, the Antares and Cygnus team encountered and resolved a minor vehicle processing issue over the weekend, which, together with time spent on contingency planning for Hurricane Matthew, necessitated the one-day slip. This updated schedule is still subject to the completion of all remaining pre-launch testing and operational activities, as well as acceptable weather conditions prior to and during launch operations. So the usual stuff, but some form of minor vehicle processing issue of which there has been no clarification or specification about. Now keep in mind, this is a slightly different rocket than the one that launched on Orb 3, the ill-fated mission back on October 28th of 2014. That one used different engines and there have been upgrades to some of the flow lines and multiple things resulting in this now being called the Antares 230 variation. Probably the biggest difference being the two main engines are now RD-191s. But what do you think about that very vague description for the delay? Yeah, sure. It's something I'm going to have to go ahead and follow up on when I'm down here. Planning on going over there tomorrow, number one, to get my badge. But number two, um, maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and just make some you know, kind of discreet inquiries and I'll try to see what I can dig up when I'm down there. That could be anything to be honest with you, and I just want to find out what that is. I mean, it's, it, I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit. Indeed, the old engines that were in, on the Antares vehicle, which were the sort of the smoking guns, if you will, for the October 28th mishap, were the AJ-26 engines. And, of course, those were offshoots of uh, the Russian-made NK-33. What the company Aerojet Rocketdyne was doing is they were taking the NK-33 engines, basically souping them up more. It's like taking the engine from your 64 Mustang or your 69 Camaro and putting 21st century technology into it and making it do things that you know, it never really was designed to do. Unfortunately, they, those engines apparently turned out to be the Achilles heel for uh, for Orb 3 and have been since replaced by the RD-191. Again, that's a Russian-made engine. And to put it succinctly, the only reason why we're going with the RD-191 on Antares is because we don't have any other alternative otherwise. To, well, there isn't another engine out there currently that could be fitted into Antares. Now, I know Jeff Bezos has got the BE-4 going, and I know Aerojet Rocketdyne has got the AR-1 going, but and I just... You know, don't know if either one of those engines may be you know, down the road looked at for Antares. It's another question I have in mind 
So we'll just have to see going forward. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll make a discreet inquiry, sorry, as far as what that's all about. We're coming up on the anniversary of that mishap, the Orb 3 mishap. I think getting back into the spaceflight game is going to be really, really something special for the Mid-Atlantic region here and quite exciting. It'll be a bit of a cathartic moment to see the newly re-engined Antares leave from Pad 0A. I think it'll bring the whole mishap thing full circle. Um, I can also understand why Orbital ATK is being a little bit more careful with this because of what occurred back on September 1st with the uh, Amos 6 Falcon 9 failure. We're being really, really careful with the newly re-engined Antares at this point. Because right now, like it or not, Cygnus is sort of like the lifeline, if you will, to the ISS. In essence, this launch coming up this week has to work. Right now, Cygnus is really the U.S. linchpin. We're getting cargo and logistics to the International Space Station. This mission, not only from a sense of pride, but it's also mission critical for the International Space Station going forward. So our fingers are going to be crossed. I know I will be about maybe two and a half miles out from the launch pad when we go see this thing go. I'm so looking forward to seeing the uh, SS Allen Poindexter, as OA-5 is named for, this particular Cygnus spread her wings and, uh, and take to the sky. It's going to be an exciting moment around here. As far as what the public around here is thinking, I, I, I was just working down here in the lobby here at the Days Inn in Chincoteague, and some folks were just stopping me looking at, oh, yeah, we know about that. And so there's a lot of excitement down here. And I think I talked to a couple of people and just staying a little while longer to see the launch on Friday night. So, uh, again, there's a lot of excitement down here, you know, indigenously. But I think, too, there's going to be a lot of excitement just to get the, the monkey off our backs from October 28th, 2014, and see uh, Antares fly again. Return to flight missions are always special, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be a really good flight. That's the only reason why I found it bizarre that the first email was so vague, you know, because they're coming off of that previous failure of their rocket. But again, we're all rooting for Orbital ATK. We want this to succeed. Because they still have so many more flights to put out to the ISS, and then there's the second resupply contract too, so... They've got a lot to work with here, and they've got a lot of upcoming launches, and really excited to see it coming back from the middle part of the East Coast, which means that anybody from New York all the way down to Florida, if you are along the East Coast, is within range of getting to see the rocket. So head on to NASA.gov and make sure that you check that out if you get to listen to this before the rocket launches to go out and try and see this launch if you're on the eastern part of the United States. That's right, and uh, Orbital ATK does furnish some really cool graphics on to where to look. If you go to their, their website, they usually have some really interesting uh, graphics as far as nice perches to view the launch from wherever you are here in the mid-Atlantic region. And typically you can even use Google Earth if you have Google Earth to put this in, and it'll show you... You can look at, and I did this, have done this for launches from Wallops, where it can show you from right from your front porch where you should look to see it in the sky um, how long after after the launch. And I'm actually particularly excited because I'm going to be in D.C. on Friday, so I should even have a chance to get to see this one. You should. Even Mark Gratterman and myself over here in North Florida will have a chance to see it too. So make sure you go out and take a look. Just as an aside too, there's usually some pretty spectacular 
images coming from 30 Rock up on the observation deck over there with the contrail flying over both now the Empire State Building and One World Trade. I'm so looking forward to seeing those images once they uh, come off. So fingers crossed and, and looking forward to a good launch. And go Cygnus, go Orbital ATK, go Antares. Oh, yes. Now, you also mentioned that this is coming off the heels of that SpaceX failure of the Amos 6 launch, which was actually before the launch. A little bit of an update on that. SpaceX has said that they are looking at the second stage helium tank, but one thing that came out recently that was bizarre that they were looking at was the idea of possible foul play. Elon has said that they were looking at all different aspects and they didn't want to rule anything out. However, it was reported in the Washington Post that apparently an employee from SpaceX had gone and knocked on the door, essentially, at one of the United Launch Alliance buildings located about a mile from Space Launch Complex 40 on Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And keep in mind, Space Launch Complex 40, Slick 40, was where the failure took place of Amos 6. It's reported that a SpaceX representative went and took a look at the roof of the SMARF building, which, if anybody knows the Cape, that is where they refurbished the solid rocket motors for all the ULA launches. There was reports that SpaceX officials had come across something suspicious that they wanted to check out, including still images from video that appeared to show, quote, an odd shadow, then a white spot on the roof of a nearby building leased by ULA, close quote. United Launch Alliance is denying this, but instead saying that it was an Air Force investigator who took a look at the roof. Either way, it appears that somebody was checking the roof of ULA for foul play. That same uh, Washington Post article basically said that uh, ULA told the SpaceX representative, uh, no, you're not going up on our roof, thank you very much, but we will ask the United States Air Force to go ahead and check it out, and they found nothing. There's a really intriguing article on one of our uh, affiliated groups, Spaceflight Insider, that has a full detailed explanation as to why SpaceX was kind of grasping at straws at that one. There's just no way in God's green earth that a tank could have ruptured even if a bullet hit it. That's number one. That was the accusation that there was some sort of sharpshooter up on the top of the building, and that sharpshooter basically took a pot shot at the spacecraft while it was refueling. I think somebody needs to stop watching some James Bond movies and seriously needs to get back to an investigation as far as what's been going on. I'm sorry for being that critical, but that was my first impression. I thought next, who are they going to go ahead and blame? Ernst Stavro Blofeld for this uh, particular event. And are there people out there that want to do the company bad? Yeah, there are. There, I'm sure there's a bunch of jealous folks. But to go ahead and try to say that some sort of other nation like Russia or China might be trying to go ahead and sabotage the spacecraft while it's sitting there, that would be really, really awfully hard to do. If the idea was to try to keep SpaceX in the headlines, yeah, they accomplished it. Okay, but if if this was really trying to go ahead and saying, oh yeah, we, we think that there's something wrong, or somebody was trying to blow up our rocket, to me that sounds like a desperation move. 
that this is something they don't understand and they're about ready to go ahead and blame something else. I think some of this is probably media framing as well. Um, Because if you read the story just for the basic facts, I mean, it's quite simple. They saw something, they saw a flash on the roof of a ULA building. They sent someone to ask about it. ULA very rightly did not want a competitor involved or in their building, which is not unusual. So ULA reached out and asked the Air Force to come check it out. So yes, they might have saw something and everyone followed the proper channels through which to have it looked at. So I think some of the conspiracy theory and and all of that was some way in in the way that the media has framed, you know, what is SpaceX thinking because of the fact that Elon said, you know, we've eliminated all the possible or probable things. But, you know, as we know, when anomalies happen, it's not typically something you expect to happen, so... Professor Plum did it in the conservatory with a revolver. I'm looking at an uh, article that appeared today in Space News, and this is quoting Gwen Shotwell, SpaceX president, quote, We're homing in on what happened. I think it's going to point not to a vehicle issue or an engineering design issue, but more of a business process issue. And this goes back to what I was trying to say, I guess it was two episodes ago, with the style of investigation. And Mark, I'm so glad you're here because you could go ahead and kind of tell what the NTSB does. And that's what I sort of recommended that SpaceX do. They do a full forensic look at not only the technical side of all this, but also, there are other processes that contribute to all this. And, and Mark, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know for a fact that because of your FAA dealings, you kind of know what the NTSB does in an investigation. You could tell me how they break this thing up, because they not only look at the engineering standpoints, right, Mark? They kind of look at other things like training. If it was a procedural issue, what procedures have to be changed and from a training issue what training needs to happen so that these decisions don't happen again they also look at things from a cultural standpoint and from a corporate cultural standpoint and i'm thinking maybe too that this is what spacex has to do so i'm kind of stealing your thunder a little bit mark but can you kind of give us some insight what the ntsb does into an investigation and this is what i'm saying why i think spacex has to go that way I think you've done an excellent job hitting the high points. There's teams of people with very, very specific specialties that they're looking into. And one of the things I've pretty much ignored is the whole incident. And I think the FAA is involved in the investigation as well. That's correct, Mark. I think it's the FAA and the Air Force that are oversight on the investigation with NASA playing an advisory role. Yeah, just don't don't anybody. I would suggest nobody stay up late waiting for the results because <laughs> it'll be months. Just saying. Any idea? I now now I know Gwen Shotwell was saying that she's looking at November for a return to flight. Does anybody buy that on the panel? I'm just going to throw that out there. I don't. Yeah. I mean, if so, it's if so, it's going to be out of Pad 39A at this point. That they pretty much said, but. I'm expecting they're going to try to push for the end of the year, but it's probably going to get delayed till started next. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting, and we'll talk about this in a bit, was sort of when Elon was at IAC, he sort of offhandedly made this mention of, oh yeah, and, and Falcon Heavy's first launch will now be next year. So it was it was sort of interesting, just in thinking of return to flight, 
to consider how, how this has affected the rest of SpaceX's schedule. I just don't see how they're going to return to flight when they don't fully understand what happened to Amos 6. If it is a ground support issue, that ground support equipment could theoretically exist at Pad 39A and at Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is also recovering from its little fire there too. We have an example to look at right now. I mean, how long has it taken Orbital ATK to return to flight? Yeah, it's taken them two years. Yeah, it's not, this is not typically a process of just a month or two. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm a little... It does help that they have another launch pad available to them. So that does make a bit of a difference. But it also just seems absolutely incredible. I mean, I don't think it's going to be two years, but <laughs> for sure. But Not two months either. Not two months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would actually put money on what Sawyer said. And of course, uh, a year ago, plus or minus, I forget the exact date, when SpaceX did not allow the media out to 39B, we can all pat ourselves on the back that we contributed to their readiness of 39B by not spending 30 minutes out there during a press briefing. <laughs> oh, boy, Mark, oh, don't get me started. <laughs> oh, that, yes. Oh, I forgot about the fun in the grass that day right outside Pad 39. That was, that was fun. And not only that, there was no SpaceX representative there. It was just the NASA oh, oh, yeah. uh, commercial cargo and commercial crew representative out there. But that's another story altogether. And I still remember, I, I kind of wish, we actually may have that reported, Sawyer, somewhere, you and I. Uh, I know I have. That one, that, oh, cool. That one comment where... Um, if we were to go out to the launch platform and somebody going, ah, you know, like SpaceX was going to allow us to do that. <laughs> yep, check our previous episode where we talked about that. If not, I can send over the recording, see if we can get that played. But yeah, that was um, quite the moment. But hey, then again, you know, Orbital ATK, they, for their, you know, they obviously haven't been able to launch satellites, but for their Cygnus vehicle, I mean, they've been using the Atlas V for their last two launches, which was a great thing that they could do. SpaceX, they've got their backup of, you know, having Pad 39A, although that doesn't really fix their rocket. Yeah, I think that something that, that's maybe perhaps not often highlighted that's really quite amazing is that we now have a robust enough commercial sector that when Orbital HUK lost their own rocket and their own ability to launch, that they were able to contract out to another commercial service provider in order to fulfill their contract, which is actually something that was mentioned at IAC by Bolden during the Heads of Agencies press conference. Yeah, I mean, that's a big plus for them. Even if it has taken them two years to get Antares back, they've flown twice in the last year, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, and not only that, Sawyer, I think they were able to carry up more cargo because that's essentially the boost power that the Atlas V gives you. And essentially, I think they're going to be completing their, if everything goes well with OA-5, I think they're going to be completing their end of the bargain as far as the contract that they have with NASA ahead of schedule and or yeah, and kind of where they where they really wanted to be. Yeah, we actually have audio of it, so I'm not sure the quality of the recording, so something we'll have to see if can be cleaned up, but where Bolden specifically addresses this, and he basically says, hey, at NASA, we don't care how they get to it. We don't care how they do it. We just care that they fulfill the terms of their contract. 
So we're very happy that Orbital ATK was able to reach out and have ULA provide uh, launch services for their craft. With respect, they had that going. I think it was something that they were, it was a contingency plan that they had already baked because I believe they had that contingency plan set up within about three days pretty much of the mishap. If memory serves, there was a conference call with David Thompson, who still is the CEO of uh, Orbital ATK. During that conference call, they talked about what the return to flight would be and so on and so forth and said they were already in negotiations with several vendors right now to see if they can get Cygnus onto another spacecraft because they have a lot of experience doing that because of their satellite building division. They can pretty much get the spacecraft pretty much on any booster. I mean, they, I know they did reach out to Ariane Space. I know they reached out to a couple other vendors here, and I don't know if SpaceX was one of those. Those are not. My bet it might have been. Well, we had this conversation back when, when this happened when they announced that they would, and all of us speculated, and I think that we all agreed that <laughs> we're sure it's going to be the Atlas they choose, and we were correct. ULA and, and Orbital got pretty much a symbiotic relationship anyway with other satellites and other projects that they've kind of worked on. So it was, I mean, it was a no-brainer anyway, plus the Atlas record kind of speaks for itself as far as its launch record. How, we're at what, Sawyer, about 109, 110 now? Or, or further, okay, under 11 launches? At least 105. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's at least 105. Okay. But uh, to just put a punctuation mark on this whole thing, I think SpaceX just has to do a lot of soul-searching right now before they go ahead and launch. And in my eyes, I think it would be foolhardy to go ahead and launch again when you don't really fully understand what happened to you the last time. And in my eyes, they have to get a better handle on what happened to the Falcon 9 that was supposed to be for MS 6 and figure out what made that thing just absolutely disintegrate on the launch pad before they go ahead and go forward. I mean, I would, if I were a launch provider, I'd be a little skitterish about using Falcon right now until I was pretty much secure that they had their act together as far as uh, safeguarding my payload. I know... Um, SES, they've already jumped on the bandwagon and said we don't have a problem with them, and a couple other companies have, are going to stick it out. It'll be definitely interesting to see if they if they revert back to not having payloads mated for static test fires. And I mean, obviously, we covered that in some detail, and I do think that that was, it's not a huge deal that, or at least to me, it's not a huge deal that there's anomalies and that rockets are lost, because they're a new company, it's a fairly new rocket, I mean... It used to be rockets exploding used to be much more commonplace in, in spaceflight. So that, to me, is not so much of a big deal. But what really, for me, was the biggest issue, and I think that this is something that will have to be addressed to the satisfaction of, at least when it comes to national security payloads and the U.S. government as a customer is going to have to be answered, is this could have been prevented or the loss of the, the cargo could have been prevented had the, against advice of the insurers or against the desires there, had the payload not been mated for a static test fire. So that to me is the big, yes, they need to find out what happened. Yes, they need to know, is this something that could happen again? Was it a one-time thing? You know, what's the reasons? And as Mark so correctly pointed out, we're not going to know the answers to those questions for some time. So don't hold your breath. But... For me, the big issue is, is there going to be a change in the culture 
that takes preventable losses a little more seriously. And Kat, you hit on something too with the insurers as well. What impact is this going to have on you know insuring payloads going forward? So, I mean, grant you too, we're here now looking at Antares as well. So fingers crossed over there on pad 0A, which is just up the road from here. But uh, again, what impact is this loss going to have on, on insurers going forward? Because a lot of people well, think it's too low. Yeah, it's going to have an impact on insurance. And it's also, while they do have customers sticking with them, it's definitely going to make people look a little harder at other launch providers. Because you know what? There's a lot of competition right now. There's yeah, going to be more. Definitely. That's what's going to take a long time to really find out. But they cannot let this happen again. They cannot treat a customer's payload like that for insurance reasons and because you want a company that cares endlessly about your payload. And, you know, their reasons for doing it was to be an even more low-cost provider. You know, they want to be a low-cost lunch provider. And, and that's great. You should... You know, I spent years before I went back to academia working for Geico, the insurance company, which is very big about being the low-cost insurance provider. But for them, it was about providing those low costs while still delivering an excellent product. And SpaceX has to do the same thing. They have to provide a low cost while also delivering a reliable product. So they have to find that right balance. And maybe this time they cut the wrong thing. So there are places in which you can find cost savings and there's places at which some risk aversion is a good thing. Yeah, and, and Cassie, you hit on something too. There are going to be other players coming up. Just recently, we had the announcement by Blue Origin with the new Glenn spacecraft and the new Glenn booster. Orbital ATK is kind of hinting that they want to get into the ELV business as well. What I remember on one of their quarterly announcements, they had indicated that maybe first quarter of next year they're going to make a decision whether or whether or not to proceed with their own Falcon 9 class or vehicle. So there's going to be a lot more choices coming up, and that can only be really great news for people that want to ride to a low Earth orbit or geosync orbit or beyond because there will be much more choices out there, which also means, guess what, the cost goes down. I should also mention that congratulations to Blue Origin, who successfully completed an in-flight abort test, uh, which involved the separation of the vehicle, as well as the re-landing of the booster, which was the fifth time that same booster had flown and landed. Ah, uh, Sawyer, that was amazing. Yeah, and they weren't expecting to be able to land it either, and they thought it was going to break up or, or slam into back into Earth, and, and they landed it, so it was a really pleasant surprise for them. Oh, yeah, and it was all looked very smooth and very beautiful. And again, both parts of the craft were recovered, which is most important. And as they've said, that booster is now going in a museum. <laughs> both of those vehicles, if I remember, Sawyer, are going to be retired. But uh, gosh darn it, there's going to be uh, one more little turtle insignia on that vehicle before they go ahead and throw it in a museum, and that should do it. Hats off to Blue Origin. They're getting ready, and I believe the next time they fly, they're going to be test flying one of the actual capsules they're going to use for their suborbital jaunts, if you will. And I believe one of the features on that capsule is one of the largest windows ever designed for a spacecraft. So in this way, somebody who's looking out those windows can really appreciate the view. Yes, indeed. Congratulations to them, and I know SpaceX will eventually figure out what the problem is, and we'll all find out together, and hopefully they'll be back up and flying soon, along with Antares, and then all of our private vehicles will be up and flying again. 
And I feel like this is the perfect tie-in while we're still talking about SpaceX to go into the International Astronautical Congress, which our very own Cassie Tamanin and Kat Robison were at, which included a talk by Elon Musk, which you alluded to part of what he had mentioned about uh, the anomaly, and um, then some other kind of pretty big topics, right? Yes, Sawyer. So this uh, year's IAC, well, the headline was definitely Musk, and it was definitely interesting. The talk was called Making Humans a Multiplanetary Species, and right off the bat, he... One thing I really liked about the talk, let's start there, was he kicked it off with why go anywhere. And I liked that he said it's not about immediate doomsday problems, because a lot of people, of course, think of becoming interplanetary as all about that. But I also like that he wants to create a true self-supporting city, because that's something we're eventually going to have to do. And then, well, it's... I really disagree with him about why not the moon. And I also kind of question the idea that first and foremost, he thinks this is going to become about the price of a house. <laughs> and yes, he, he thinks claimed, what, that the price 000? of a house. Yes. He claims $200,000 is going to be affordable to anyone who wants to go. I think that, you know, and obviously we can, we can discuss this and, and the talk has, has been out for a while. Uh, unfortunately, both Cassie and I um, were fighting some sickness, so we, we had to delay recording this for a week. But one thing that really struck me about this talk is one, is that he gave a talk to the internet audience. It, it really wasn't a talk for the audience of the IAC. It's a space sciences conference. People there are highly have a, a high level of, of knowledge about this. They understand the challenges and they understand the capabilities that we have and don't have. And he started the talk off like we were a class of kindergartners learning about the solar system. Um, so for me, it, it became very readily apparent, not only um, through the structure of the talk and also the graphics that he used. And Cassie, I know that you have thoughts about that. Uh -huh. That this was something... <laughs> that was intended for their internet audience and not necessarily intended for the Congress itself. Although I think the optics of having several thousand people in a giant room and waiting hours outside to hear him talk were great for him and for SpaceX. But when it came to it, this talk wasn't at the technical level of other presentations and other talks that were given at the Congress. My most retweeted thing, I think, from all of IAC, I'd have to look at the numbers to make sure, but was of the pandemonium of people running into the room. People, I think, actually cared more about that in a lot of ways, like the general public, random people who follow me on Twitter because I don't get followed just by space people. They loved that. <laughs> and I felt like a lot of the talk was engineered specifically for that moment more than anything. You know, I don't know if it was on purpose, but he was late. We were kept waiting for a really long time. The lines were all the way across the expo, it looked like. We went over to the press entrance, and it was, even over there, it was pandemonium of people trying to get in for that. This was like, they, they were creating a rock star moment. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Was that by Absolutely design, agree. do you think, guys? Yes. Partially, for sure. Partially, maybe not. 
Well, I think Elon Musk very well understands the power of personality and the draw of personality. And in some ways, you know, despite my personal dislike for what that sort of hubris may have injected into his company, with some of the things that I don't like there, it's actually probably really good for the commercial industry of a, as a whole because it, it, it does bring attention. However, in some ways, I think, also think it was a little harmful for perhaps the audience at IAC because also there, Lockheed Martin gave a technical presentation and a highlight lecture about their plans for Mars that was much more detailed and much more appropriate to the audience than Musk did. Um, yet it was very glossed over and I'm not even sure got that much attention, not only from the, the space media, but also just from the participants of the Congress as a whole. Well, and remember, this was orchestrated in so many ways. When did we first hear about this talk? Six months ago? Yeah. Something like that? Three months ago, it became all the news and bit by bit details started leaking out before. And so, you know, honestly, it was a brilliant piece of hype. Brilliant. And I, I really respect and admire that field. I took classes in PR. I've done PR for bands and stuff. It, it was brilliantly handled. Yeah, like I said, you have to you have to respect that. Yeah. But I mean, when we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the talk as they were, a lot of this was was sort of like vision boarding. Yeah. You know, there was there was a great <laughs> he he cast a vision for us, but I'm still not sure how he's actually going to accomplish that. And, and the thing and is, I he did that brilliant thing where he gave just enough details to make it feel like he'd told you details, but not enough to actually know the details, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, he talked a lot about how, you know, they have to, the cost savings have to come from full reusability and refilling in orbit and producing propellant from resources on Mars in situ. All of these things are right, and I think most people are in agreement that these are this is part of the technology that we need moving forward and these are and this is research that's going on right now i mean i particularly think of swamp works that at ksc is really mm -hmm. working a lot on this in situ resource use and, and how do we create fuel and how do we create resources that was and not that we just can there use, whether it's on mars yeah it's, it's like everywhere. everybody like who's in graduate school right now in any related field is working on exactly these ideas like yeah, so we went to technical like... sessions and saw students proposing their solutions for these things exactly and the difference between this and a technical session is that in those technical sessions you actually see some real work behind these ideas and it, I remember looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, Elon, where are your footnotes? Where are you getting these numbers? Where are you getting... I really wanted some answers to some of the meatier questions because we all know that he wants to go to Mars. Like, none of this was a surprise. Nothing that he said was a giant surprise. These are things that he's been talking about. But what I was really hoping for and really felt that, that he just did not deliver was some actionable things. Like, what are you actually going to do? How are you going to pay for this? How will this fit into existing architecture that we have? And, and, and what new things are you going to have to develop? I mean, he touched on all these, but he really didn't. It just never came to fruition for me. I feel like he actually talked about funding a lot more than he talked really about the technical aspects. He spent a long time waxing poetic about carbon fiber, mm -hmm. which plenty of people do. Um, but when it came to funding... He said that it would be a combination of money SpaceX is earning by launching satellites, private funding from large donors, crowdfunding, and he wants 
it to be a public-private partnership and get governments to invest, which is why it was actually interesting when a woman asked later on about how SpaceX currently doesn't hire foreign employees and, and all that stuff. And I was talking to this woman later, and she was saying, this has to be, if, if we're going to colonize Mars and it's going to be a commercial company doing it, starting to find ways to make this international needs to start way earlier in the process. And she understands, he answered her question as they deal with ITAR restrictions. And so they need people who at least have green cards. And we all understand that that's an issue in the aerospace community on many levels. But she had a really good point that SpaceX is going to need to start strengthening their international ties and things as well in order to make this happen on anywhere near the timeline that Musk proposes. Can I just say that if I had a dime every single time Elon mentioned ITAR, I'd be able to afford a trip to Mars. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is, though, a very important point, these ITAR restrictions, because I think we all agree that going to Mars or going back to the moon is an international endeavor. This is something that requires international cooperation, which is why, at least in my opinion, I think it's important that national space agencies or agencies like ESA are working on this because they already have in place the frameworks to have international cooperation. They're already cooperating internationally on large projects and they're able to make agreements in ways that right now SpaceX can't do because of SpaceX and its ITAR restrictions. So it, it's really, for me, that brings up this question of, yes, it's important that we have commercial companies going towards these goals, but it also is a, is a great argument for publicly led missions of this nature. I'm going to be uh, just just throw something out there, and I don't know if this was even asked during the, that bizarre Q and A afterward. I guess to paraphrase a space news writer, if you're going to go ahead and name your ship Heart of Gold, you're going to expect some Vogon poetry afterward. Did anybody bring up the fact that okay, fine, what happens if we do find microbes on Mars? Funny you should ask, because that is the question that we wanted to ask. And unfortunately, because of the unmoderated nature of the debate and some last-minute switching around that opened the press conference up to other than press, we didn't get to ask it, and no one ever presented this question to him about what happens for planetary protection. What are the planetary protection elements that you have in place? Yeah, to me, it, to me, all bets are off. Mars belongs to the Martians, if that's the case, even if they are microbes. There's so much for colonization. I mean, we could go over there, we could study, yeah, but as far as moving a human presence over there, to me, we're done. We can't, in my eyes, we yeah. can't really do it. I've often called the discovery of microbial life on Mars, that if that happens, that would be the best and worst thing to ever happen in space exploration. It is, and we've had this conversation when, when there's that big announcement about the briny water flows on Mars on this podcast. What are the implications for the future human exploration of Mars if we discover life on Mars, whatever form that life takes? So, yeah, it, it's a darn shame, too, that they kind of threw the, the whole Q&A afterward because I, I, was, I was really, really disappointed to hear that it turned into 
a bit of a circus over there. I saw at least five five of the most bizarre questions I've ever seen in my entire life asked. Uh, I'm wondering what other lowlights or highlights, whatever you want to call it, can you guys provide? I mean, a lot of the, the questions to me were, you know, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? I mean, I'm obviously, I couldn't believe that they, they really opened this up to the fanboys and the fangirls rather than to the serious press. Gene, imagine now. Imagine being the person, the next person in line after the woman who asked to kiss Elon Musk. Oh, God. Musk. Please tell me that okay. wasn't you. That was me. Well, what about the Burning Man question? <laughs> But I mean, I mean, the the funny thing is, is Cassie and I were having a discussion a bit later in the day about this, and we said it was either the stupidest thing ever or a brilliant move on Elon Musk's part to avoid actual questions from the actual press corps. Yeah, I'm wondering too. That that's a good point, Cat. Was it calculated to do that? Uh, lest we also go into too much conspiracy theory, jumping around here. It's just. That was that was my thought. It's like, hmm, this is interesting. But also, I mean, he was late for the session, and who knows what changes had to happen because he was late. And apparently, he's always late. So really, every time I've seen him, he's never been late. He apparently has a reputation for it. There were a bunch of articles that came out like during his talk at IAC mentioning it, even because <laughs> they were like, oh, he's late again. And so, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't realized that either. But they kept popping up in my Twitter feed during the talk <laughs> a blanket question for anybody it's a jump ball anybody you know dive in by my count i've had about maybe 13 or 14 plans for mars okay i, I i'm not going to go through all of them do you folks think that this is going to end up on the same trash heap if you will that and not exactly trash heap but I was in the room when Mars Direct happened. Uh, I was in the room when you know Buzz proposed his um, his cycling spacecraft at ISDC many years ago. Constellations come and gone. The Thomas Paine Commission, pioneer in the space frontier back in the 80s, that's come and gone. I mean, heck, even Robert Goddard was the really, really the first one to at least privately talk about a trip to Mars as a, as a practical possibility. Is the speech from IAC going to go ahead and end up on that same list of speculative missions? And is the journey to Mars that NASA is working on right now going to end up being the, the champion that's going to get us there? Or do you think this thing is actually going to go ahead and happen? And this is going to be the silver bullet that so many people are telling me that this is. I should just go ahead and walk in lockstep with, with Elon or get left behind. I think we're going to the moon first. I mean, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that's absolutely true. Like, we're, we're going to, yes, we're going to get to Mars. I think it's going to happen. But I think when it comes to what are we going to see, like, the next great thing in human spaceflight beyond low Earth orbit, we're all going back to the moon. Even in NASA's journey to Mars, it includes time in cislunar space. And I highly doubt that if other nations are landing on the moon and we're not, that that's going to be the status quo. Americans don't like to see what other, you know, I mean, this is somewhat a bit, a bit of, I don't know, maybe just some cynicism on, on my part or, or or something, but Americans don't like to see. I mean, we, we have sort of a proprietary. We're gonna get possessive. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say we're, we're gonna, gonna get possessive. A, we have a bit of a proprietary, you know, feel over the moon. Like, you know, hey, we've been there. 
Um, and I think that's if, our toy. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I, I don't, and I think that I mean, I think Bolden was really, you know, he said that yes, we're we're going back to the moon, but the U.S. isn't going to lead the way there. And I think that's that's probably correct. You know, we don't need to be the the trailblazer. We've already done that. But I do think that we'll be involved in whatever happens, like missions down to the surface, because it's it's too great of a test bed not to use it. You know, not to to test some of the things that we'll need to be able to do on Mars, on the moon. Uh, and I do think that... Also, actually, at this point in time, we're basically the only nation on this planet that is not aiming to put people on the moon. Yeah. Like, we're it. <laughs> the paper I gave was about what are we doing in our international cooperation after 2024. And this year, just like last year, a lot of the conversation was about the moon and how we're going to get back to the surface, who's going back to the surface, and the importance of international cooperation to make any of that happen. And then Mars was also a huge topic. Everyone's talking about how we're going to get to Mars. But part of that, part of every conversation, except for Elon Musk's conversation was we have to go to the moon first. So do I think that commercial companies such as SpaceX are eventually going to get to Mars? Yes, I do. But I also think that they need, we need a secondary, we need a, an intermediary step before we get there. And I really do think that the consensus in the community is moving towards that step must be more lunar exploration and practice and, and use of the cislunar space. And, you know, I will give Musk credit on, on one thing. He talked a lot about the comfort of the crew and things like that because he was talking about 100 passengers at a time going to Mars, which is a very different thing from sending seven or nine government astronauts, you know, or cosmonauts or taikonauts for that matter, to go explore somewhere. That's a very, very different thing. So I think that when we talk about Mars exploration, everybody's talking about getting there first. But I think the reality is that an international governmental, probably public-private partnership to some extent, project is going to be what puts the first human steps on Mars. Yeah, I However, agree. I like that somebody's talking about the colonizing. I like that because that'll be the... That'll be a step down the road. So I think first you go to the moon, then you first explore Mars, then you start colonizing it. And I do think it's good that there are people talking about that further step at this point, because you know what? It's going to take a really long time to make that viable. So you got to talk about it now. I've said this on, on this program so many times, it's ridiculous, but I think the moon is a critical step on the way to Mars. It's not a, not a diversion. And, you know, the thing is, to tell you the truth, now that I've been to a couple of IACs and, of course, there's people that we all talk to all around the industry, the most consensus that I seem to find among the great thinkers in the space world is exactly that. It's not even really a question. I feel like the only people who disagree are the people who are advising our president eight years ago <laughs> and six years ago and everybody else seems to be in agreement on this. So it's what's going to happen. And so we talk a lot about NASA and commercial space and uh, space agencies from other countries. And of course they're all very, very different things and they do more and more in cooperation because frankly, nobody can afford the bill on their own. But this whole thing of adding commercial space to the mix it has changed a lot and it has changed our capabilities and 
I think there's a great case for the moon making money in the not too distant future as well, which will make it attractive to much more commercial. So it's a necessary step for every aspect of the space industry moving forward. And so it's going to happen. It's not a question of that. The only question is whether NASA is going to be part of it. That's it. And we have a new administration coming in in a few months. <laughs> Actually, Eric Berger wrote a great article. I believe it was for Ars Technica this week. And he was talking about how the next administration can take our journey to Mars plan. They don't have to scrap it at all. They can literally add moon landings to that plan in a way that you couldn't change the problems with our prior Mars plan. And so they're saying like the engineering is good. The technology is good. What's happening is good. We could actually just add lunar landings into that journey. And that's a really great point because it, gives the next president the flexibility to listen to the best science out there at the moment and the best engineering minds out there in the moment as well and pay attention to that and just add that to something that's already a huge generational program. I made the same observation back when Bill Gerstenmeier gave his NEF presentation. I thought the design of the whole thing was masterful because it does allow for flexibility. And, and you can go to the moon. I mean, he hinted saying that back then, he said, well, we're, it's not part of our plan yet, but he, he kind of left the door ajar a little bit during that meeting. At least that's the way my, my interpretation well, was. Everybody was aware we were already in election season, and we all know that the president gets to set space policy, and it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's everything gets up in the air every four to eight years here, as we always complain about on this show. Well, fingers crossed this time, but... Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's, it's also just to mention for our listeners is that we will discuss the space positions of the candidates before the election, just so, you know, it's something that we should be aware of. I'm trying to find position papers and things like that on, on both sides, and unfortunately they are few and far between on both sides. But we'll dig them up all for you, and we will present them, I hope, before November, guys. So that should be our, our next port of call. So I'm looking forward to digging in on that one and just kind of presenting all that stuff for uh, on both sides and, and letting the audience make up their minds. Hey, Mark, I know you've had some uh, strong opinions on the SpaceX thing. What say you? Okay, so uh, as far as SpaceX and Elon Musk goes, I think for entertainment value, you ought to go to the theater and watch the current Star Trek, Star Wars. Press conferences are pretty much worthless. I'm sorry I don't have anything positive to say, but I think science fiction makes as good of a uh, presentation as what I heard about Elon Musk at IAC. Mark, you are the wind beneath my wings. (laughs) (laughs) And again, I didn't listen to any of it. I haven't watched any recordings of it. It's actually from comments on another podcast that I listened to today. So I may be out in left field. If so, I'm used to it. And... um, (laughs) I won't even apologize. Don't you dare. Agreed 100%. I mean, that was, that's actually really an interesting viewpoint of it. And I wasn't going to say it. I've been staying quiet mostly through this topic. But yeah, I was watching it with a few people at work. And it really was, you know, like, oh, they're talking about the grand scale of everything. And of course, it's going to have to be huge to get to Mars. But there's been so many attempts 
to do it. Even Werner von Braun had his Mars plans, which here we are, you know, 30, 40 years later from that and still nothing. Can't say for sure what's going to make this one different, but <laughs> it did seem a bit fantasy and sci-fi more so than sci-fact yet. But that's an interesting way to look at it, Mark. I like that. You know, to tell you the truth, I think there's going to be quite a bit more fiction before there is much truth when it comes to landing human beings on Mars. I think it's an inevitable part of doing something so grand. Was it appropriate to, you know, announce it at the world's biggest astronautical congress? Well, that's something you can decide for yourselves, dear listeners. <laughs> As I know many of you do. <laughs> many of you certainly tell us that. And we've heard in the past from people who said we've had too much of a negative view towards SpaceX. But, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinions. And, of course, we always love to hear yours, too. We've been hearing a lot from you, especially during IAC, especially on Twitter at Talking Space, which thank you everyone for following through that. We've been getting some of your emails as well at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com and from some of your form submissions on our website at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. So we still have those. We know some of you have sent some really good story ideas and some good topics. And in fact, we're getting to one of your listener submitted questions next episode. But be sure to send them there on Facebook, which is Facebook, uh, Talking Space, as well as on Google+. So you can reach us on all those social media ones. We want to hear your thoughts on uh, Elon Musk's comments and anything else that we talked about tonight. On that note, I think that's the perfect point to end this episode. Are we done with IAC? Absolutely not. We have so much more, and that's going to have to wait for next episode, along with all of the updates from Wallops Island, Virginia. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight, including our Wallops Island correspondent at the moment, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Stuart. I'm looking forward to uh, telling uh, the Antares return to flight story. Can't wait to bring it back to you guys. Looking forward to hearing it. And of course, I'd like to thank everyone who's at IAC for us, which includes Cassie Tamanini. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you so much. And for the record, I love SpaceX. I want to see them succeed, and that's why we have to be critical of them. That's a great way to word it. And also thank you to the other amazing Talking Space member at IAC, Kat Robinson. Thanks again. It was lovely to be there, and I echo Cassie's comments. I want SpaceX to succeed, and I think that they have all the elements in in which to do that and so want to maybe keep elon's head in the clouds help him keep a little bit grounded so <laughs> looking forward to talking more about iac on the next episode i like it and thank you to our faa expert and resident curmudgeon mark ratterman cranky cranky pays the bills <laughs> 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 I can't even say anything to make it more perfect than that other than thank you so much for joining us and as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are